Good evening. Why is today important in this country? Why is today a special day? It's bonfire night, um, and we're hoping for some fireworks tonight um, because I know you're expecting um, uh, a steady, uh, I won't say boring, um, I'm, you're, you're expecting the regulator to give his views. I'm sure, I'm sure he has some uh, incendiary m remarks to make, and I'm sure if he doesn't make any, your questions will, uh, will oblige him to make some. Before I introduce our speaker this evening, I'd like just to highlight that we have, following this event, at 6.30 in this room, you don't even have to move, we have a screening of a documentary, uh, which is going to be introduced, and a discussion will be led by Mike Chinoy, uh, who, is, uh, uh, who made the documentary. He was the Beijing bureau chief for CNN, and the subject of the documentary is Nixon's visit to China in 1972. Um, and that is tonight uh, at 6.30 in the new theatre uh, at the London School of Economics. Uh, you don't have to go anywhere. And it will be chaired by Timothy Hildebrandt. Uh, tonight, if you're tweeting, use this hashtag... Uh, Polis Ofcom uh, to tweet your remarks about our speech. David Mahoney, I'm very delight, delighted to welcome to the LSE. He is Director of Policy Development at Ofcom, which is the independent uh, communications regulator uh, for uh, uh, the UK. Uh, he has an illustrious and impressive CV. He's worked in government. He directed the Digital Britain project, uh, which uh, led in part to one of the least popular pieces of legislation uh, in our history, um, uh, which penalizes file sharers, which won't affect you lot in any way. Um, and uh, before joining Ofcom, David was a lawyer at Richard Butler, a competition lawyer, uh, and he's worked for MTV Networks Europe and as an administrator of the government's football task force. David, welcome. Damien. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me here, Damien. Thank you all for coming to listen to the regulator. I'll start by pointing out that I'd actually left government when they put that piece of legislation through, so it's nothing to do with me. Uh, can I first of all ask, show of hands, how many people have heard of Ofcom? How many people know what Ofcom does? Okay, so... That's, that's pretty good. For those of you that don't, uh, very quickly, Ofcom is the UK communications regulator. We're responsible for regulating broadcasting, telecoms and spectrum. Uh, we look at competition issues, we look at the rollout of networks, spectrum and fixed, so broadband networks and mobile networks. And we also look at issues around broadcasting, so for example, public service broadcasting, standards regulation, and issues around plurality or media diversity. It's a great pleasure to be here today. Over the next hour, uh, 20 minutes or half an hour or so, I'm going to try and explain to you why it's fun to be a regulator, uh, to set out some of the challenges we're grappling with, and to try and set out for you some of the real-world problems that you know, I have to do, deal with in my day-to-day -day life. 
My starting point for today is going to be the internet. It's the starting point for everything I'm going to talk about. It's the fundamental invention of the modern society, uh, and that's where I'm going to start. And I'm going to start with this cartoon. I quite enjoyed this. <laughs> I, think, I think there's probably a line, I'm hoping I just sneak somewhere into the left-hand side of this, but really there's a, a fundamental line here between people who know and understand the internet, you guys, and people like me who have to learn and understand the internet in order to do our jobs on a daily basis. And really, what this cartoon does on a serious level is it puts a line between uh, policymakers who don't understand the internet and policymakers who are trying to understand the internet. And that's really a fundamental question in modern communications regulation. So I've taught, taught, called this talk the revolutionary status quo, a referee's perspective. And I've done that because it's revolutionary because we have this network, this incredibly powerful network, which is changing the nature of media and communications. You know, I think we are in a digital revolution. I do think historians will look back and talk about a digital revolution in the way they talked about an industrial revolution and other big moments in, in, in history. Status quo, because as I'll come on to, while so much is changing, so much is staying the same. And actually what we're looking at here is refounding some basic principles, not replacing them. And the referee's perspective, because I'm the referee, I'm the guy who has to stand in the middle, try and work out how you make a fair playing field in all of this, uh, so that we can continue to deliver the public policy objectives that we think are important. I'm going to start with uh, the architecture of the networks. I'm going to start with uh, broadband and mobile uh, and what underpins that. So Ofcom, as the communications regulator, is partly responsible, working very closely with government, for trying to ensure that the networks uh, that underpin the internet are uh, available, available in a manner which is uh, accessible, and at a price which is competitive. And there's been an awful lot of work put into this over, over the last few years. Um, and what I'm going to do is just bore you with some stats very quickly. I apologise in advance. We're in a pretty good place. And what I'm going to try and show you here is, is a lot of work over the last three or four years has gone into giving us the great uh, digital infrastructure that we're going to need to be a modern competitive economy. So in terms of the stats, they're these. Fixed broadband is available to almost all homes in the UK today. Superfast broadband networks, and they're the networks which are capable of delivering services of 30 megabits per second or more, are available to about 73% of UK households. And the government's estimating or trying to get us to a position where there'll be 90% coverage by 2016. And whilst 8% of broadband connections in the UK currently operate at less than 2 megabits per second, and that's the speed that we really think about in terms of having a basic broadband which will allow you to do virtually everything that, that, that you should be able to do, maybe not that you want to do, but that you should be able to do, uh, two-thirds of those connections are connections in which super-fast broadband networks are going to roll out. So I think, and what our, our analysis says is that only about 3% of UK households currently receiving speeds of less than 2 megabits per second 
uh, do not have access to superfast broadband. So 3% of households probably who can't receive any kind of broadband of a meaningful sense. And that's a huge step forward. It puts us in a, in a good place. In terms of take-up, fixed broadband take-up is about 75% of the UK population. Take-up of super-fast broadband, 22%. That's up from 10% a year ago. So already we're seeing this huge increase in use of super-fast broadband. And, of course, the mobile revolution continues. In the UK, we've now launched 4G services, and take-up is past the half a million mark. And we're already thinking about fifth-generation mobile and what it will take to try and get us to, to that point. There's 6.8 billion mobile phones in the world. That's pretty much the same as, as, as the population. And in parts of Africa and Asia, as I'm sure you all know, mobile is, is now becoming the default way of, of accessing the Internet. You know, really, in these, a lot of these places, there is no point building out fibre and, and copper networks. And smartphones are now owned by over half the population. Just under a quarter of UK households have a tablet, and I'm guessing by Christmas that's going up. Uh, and in the UK, we're seeing a rapid take-up of technologies across the board. It's a really, really huge um, statement of intent by the government and a lot of progress that's being made in that. And we've done it in a way which has also begun to protect existing competition and introduce new competition in the future. So in existing broadband, we have incredible amounts of competition. There's a huge number of broadband suppliers you can, you can choose from. In super-fast broadband, the, the challenge now becomes, if we've got that investment and we've got that availability, can we introduce competition as well to ensure that we drive prices low and ensure that those services are available, both at a, uh, available and available at a cost which is affordable? All of this is just changing the nature of the relationships that we have with technology in, in some pretty fundamental ways. And I'm just going to talk about three sets of relationships. The first is the interaction of words and images. Where we used to consume news by either watching a television or reading a newspaper uh, or listening to a radio, uh, we don't anymore. We do it all at the same time. Uh, and that's why we're seeing all these providers who are changing their business models, the newspapers, trying to be cross-media, trying to understand how they can give us all of the things that we want to. Secondly, the blurring of the audience and the contributor. So we all know uh, that we used to be sit-back, lean-back individuals. Now, and I look at your generation in particular, you all want to be contributors, you want to be bloggers, citizen journalists. You want to be involved in the story, in the creation of the story, uh, involved in the message, involved in the process of journalism in, often, in a lot of cases. Thirdly, the transformation of social interactions. We all know that the rise of the 18th century and 19th century postal networks allowed people to memorialise their thoughts in a way which hadn't been possible before. But we go so much further now. We can memorialise our thoughts on a momentary basis, however trivial they might be. Uh, and we, you know, we can sum all this up in phrases like the social web and the social network and and the things which allow us to communicate in real time constantly with, with people, to be both uh, publishers and receivers. And those revolutions in the internet have changed the relationship between communications and action. 
and in turn revolutionise the vast number of human habits, endeavours and activities which depend on that relationship. Take something like the Arab Spring, for example, a classic example of where uh, instant communication was able to change and have a dramatic impact on the social and political dynamics of the Middle East. So none of this should be taken to, to mean that I'm complacent in any way about the networks. We've got huge challenges ahead of us. Um, we've still got a long way to go in making ubiquity a reality. Uh, we've still got a long way to go in getting those basic speeds up. There's, there's no way that two megabits per second is going to be the right level in five years' time, let alone 10, 15, 20 years' time. But I think it's really important that we recognise the progress that we've made as well. I sat in government four years ago worked on this Digital Britain report, I can tell you when we sat there, the sorts of numbers we're seeing now felt like an awfully long way away. Um, and that's a good news story, and it's a really, really important story, because if we're going to maximise the internet in, in all its potential, then having those networks available is, is really at the heart and soul of all that. But there's probably a more interesting question in all of that, and this is, which is, are we using those networks uniformly? And the answer to that is clearly no. If we stand back and we look at the bigger picture, we can see become people becoming more connected, more communicative. But the picture is complicated and it's nuanced. And that all-encompassing simplicity of the internet hides some real complexity uh, that policymakers and regulators are now really wrestling with. Because technology is only one part of this story and the networks are only one part of this story. How consumers react to it is a potentially much more interesting and complicated piece of the puzzle. And when we sit at Ofcom, we, we spend a lot of time researching this, uh, trying to understand how those usages are happening in what parts of society and what impact that's going to have on us in trying to make decisions about how we change regulation which will affect markets and in turn serve consumers. So let me just take you through some of the stats again about... Um, What's happening here? Oops, sorry. Save that one, sorry. Uh, unsurprisingly, you guys are, are the digital natives. You're the people who understand this stuff, uh, who use it uh, the whole time. I'm sure that you know probably half of you at the moment are using Facebook, Twittering. You're on a social network I've never heard of, uh, having a beer virtually with someone I don't know. Uh, you are the natives, uh, you are the people for whom this is going to be the reality. At the other end of the spectrum, we've got the 65-year-olds and above, the older generation, and we have to remember here that we live in an ageing population. And for them, this is all... It's, it's a frightening technology in many ways. It, it's displacing the things that they're most used to, the way that... They're used to receiving news of communicating, um, of sharing information. Of those, only about 5% use the mobile internet. That compares to about 75% of, of your generation. They're less likely to engage in issues like things like media multitasking, which is where you do more than one thing at once. Uh, and that is where a lot, of the, a lot of the people who aren't on broadband, where you'll find, find them. But to suggest that there's a sort of neat, neat division between the young and the old here is also a misconstrual of the facts. 
because amongst 55 and 64 year olds, for example, the growth of the take up of mobile internet has increased by about 145% in four years. That represents the fastest growth of any age group. Now we'll go to this one. This is a slide from our latest annual communications market report, which is a, it's a, a, a huge anthology of facts that we put out every, every year. And if, if you can uh, find a copy, it is genuinely fascinating stuff to go through and see what's happening. Uh, what we noted in this year's is a trend that we called the reinvention of the 1950s living room. Because what's really interesting is that people still gather in the living room. In fact, they watch more television than they've ever watched before. Uh, and that's just increasing. And it's been increasing every year for the last five years. Uh, it's a figure that I constantly look at and find myself astonished by. I cannot understand how this is happening because it doesn't relate to my world. It doesn't relate to how I consume media. media and I'm sure it doesn't make any sense to you guys at all. But it's the facts, and it's what's happening. But here's the interesting thing. The difference between 2013 and 1953 is that people are in the living room, but they're doing all sorts of things in the living room. So they might be sitting watching the television, but they're simultaneously playing with their tablets, their smartphones, and their PCs. They're communicating. They're using those live moments that you have on television as a, as a jumping-off board, really, for doing all sorts of other things that are around. So you know, whilst you might be sitting next to your mother who's doing one thing, you're doing another thing, your granny's doing another thing. Now, this, is the, this is the complexity of the picture that we're, we're working with here. Um, an illuminating example of this is the 2013, 2013 Wimbledon men's final, during which 1.1 million viewers posted 2.6 million tweets, which is around 80% of which came from mobile devices. It's an extraordinary figure. Connectivity, it seems, is changing the nature of conviviality. There's a bit of a quiz for you, this one, which is, can you name any of those people? <laughs> Let me tell you. First, top left is King Canute, uh, one of the main, most misrepresented men in history, who uh, purported to take his advisers down uh, to show them that he could stop the sea coming in. It's not actually what he did, but that's what he's remembered for. Uh, the second, I'm sure, is uh, you recognise is Socrates. Uh, he worried quite greatly about the introduction of mass writing and its effect on the eroding of memory and discourse. Uh, bottom left is a chap called Thomas Watson, he was the chairman of IBM in the 1940s. Uh, he said, I think there is a world market for computers. I think it'll be five. And bottom right is a guy called Daryl Zanuck, who was executive at, executive at 20th Century Fox in 1946. He said, television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of watching a plywood box every night. So why do I show those four pictures? I think really for just two simple reasons. One, we're not going to hold the tide back. You know, the internet is going to change behaviours and it's going to change everything that we do in the media and communication space. Uh, but secondly, it's not going to happen in a predictable way and we're not going to predict it. So my central point in all of this is trying to predict consumer behaviour is almost as balmy as trying to predict technology and what Google's going to do next. We're just not going to do it. What we can do is try and assess on the evidence the best that we can have. Uh, but we will not predict how people are going to react to this technology in an accurate way. 
So if we can't predict the future, what do we do? Do we have any constants? How do we, how do we begin to think about a media policy and communications framework for the 21st century? So I think the answer to this is, is pretty simple. It's about focusing more ruthlessly than ever before on what the key policy objectives are and how we're going to secure them regardless of technology in the future. This is a slide. It's a very Ofcom type of, type of picture, this. I won't, I won't ask you to read it now. Uh, but it's a slide from a um, report that we put into the European Commission recently on a paper called uh, Preparing for a Fully Converged Audiovisual World. And what it tries to do is it tries to uh, identify the difference between fundamental and desirable policy goals and split them into two parts. Firstly, what we call fundamental rights and protections. And these are the fundamental rights and protections which are inarguable, which cannot change regardless of technology, where it's, it's beyond uh, comprehension that policymakers will ever say, do you know what, we're just not going to worry about that anymore, it's too complicated. And that's things like ensuring the protection of consumers, uh, especially minors from harmful content, the preservation of freedom of expression, and protecting consumers from privacy. Uh, sorry, protecting consumers' privacy, not from privacy. <laughs> uh, secondly, uh, the public policy goals which we have to achieve a stronger society. These include ensuring competitive, well-functioning markets, which are so fundamental to innovation, choice, and price. Uh, ensuring a plurality of media voices, a diversity of media voices, to underpin our democratic systems and ensuring a strong mix of commercial and public service content and its wide availability and discoverability. And the reason we put this on paper is because we think it's really important that you start to delineate these things. And we think it's important as a matter of practicality as well as, as, well as philosophy, because regulating in an IP environment is going to be harder uh, than regulating in an analogue environment. And there's one fundamental reason for that, and that's the question of jurisdiction. What IP networks do is they stretch beyond national borders and beyond the national purview of regulators. We have global companies who see themselves and are, in GDB terms, bigger than most countries in this world at the moment. Uh, so we're not simply going to be able to take everything from the past and translate it over to the future. But neither, clearly, are we going to be able to say, let's all put our hands up and go home. This is clearly a non-starter. Uh, and therefore, the question of jurisdiction, which is going to be one of the big questions of media and communications regulation of the next 10 years, is also a question about how you really focus on what matters so that you can really think hard about the, the issues that you want to continue to provide regulation, positive or negative, about. One approach is to build adaptability, asking, how do you solve problems without creating new rules? And if you do want new rules, how can you put them in flexibly and apply them maybe to people differently, uh, to different parts of the value chain than you used to in the past. In practice, that probably means a mix of what we call self-regulation, co-regulation and statutory regulation. So just to spell those out quickly, self-regulation is effectively where you let the industry regulate itself. Uh, statutory regulation sits at the other end of the spectrum uh, and is what Ofcom does, its laws and implementation of regulations under law. And in the middle, co-regulation, which is a hybrid model of the two, uh, where 
statutory regulation and industry work very closely together to try and find solutions to problems. But critical in trying to identify which of those models is going to be right is working out what the incentives are in public policy and what the incentives are in industry and then trying to understand whether or not those two things mesh together. Because if they don't, then self-regulation is often unlikely to work. And it's really interesting. We spent a lot of time, um, uh, my chief executive spent a lot of time in front of the Leveson inquiry trying to explain uh, the difference between self-co and statutory regulation, the Leveson inquiry being the UK inquiry into the future of press regulation. And really he talked mostly about the question of incentives and can you align incentives. And what's interesting in watching the implementation of Leveson in the UK is a continuing tension between the public policy objectives on one hand and the industry objectives on the other, and therefore the difficulties that have arisen for that in terms of trying to find a solution which is workable for both sides. So I'm just going to finish by taking all of what I've just said and trying to put it into some practical realities of some areas that that we regulate on a day-to-day basis. And I'm going to focus on four. Audience protection, uh, plurality or media diversity, public service broadcasting, and net neutrality. Firstly, how do we protect audiences in a world where they can receive content from anywhere at any time? So at the moment, we have a system of regulation which is focused on the television set, uh, and that's focused on the notion of editorial control uh, of broadcasters and therefore us having the ability to license the broadcasters, impose standards on them, and then regulate them against those standards. That becomes a bit difficult and a bit troubling if you think about where content is coming from these days. Uh, So is my iPad with YouTube in regulation or not? Is... Um, If I'm sitting on my smartphone on Twitter and someone says something offensive, why is that different uh, from someone saying something offensive on on television? We start from two principles, really. One, that uh, protections which are uh, afforded uh, offline should be afforded online for the most serious things. So it cannot be right to say uh, it's the internet and therefore no rules apply. There are clearly things which... Uh, are egregious and where steps must be taken not necessarily regulation but steps must be taken to allow consumers to protect themselves and their families and the second place we, we start from is what our audience research tells us um, and we spent a lot of time researching this area and we in particular did one piece of research two years ago which was uh, quite a complicated piece of deliberative research looking at people's expectations of regulation Uh, in a modern environment. And what it told us was something really interesting. It told us that if it's on a television set, people have expectations. We've created those expectations partly through regulation. Uh, But that's what the people's expectations are. If it's not on a television set, then they have a different expectation. So the distribution technology does still matter. And therefore, there are a set of questions which underpin that about whether or not the rules that we currently have, which were built for an analogue, linear broadcasting environment, are suitable for a digital environment which has both uh, linear and on-demand television in it. Uh, But clearly, if you step forward from that, uh, there's a longer-term question here, which is, 
Do we really think that you should be getting a letter from Ofcom about the tweet that you sent on Friday night which used a rude word? And the answer to that is, I'm pretty sure no. So what do we, what do, we do? How do we think about this in the future when the distribution technology stops being a means of definition of where regulation occurs? Uh, and I'm not going to pause there because I don't have the answer to that today. Uh, what I do know is that it's going to take an awful lot of thought uh, and I'm also pretty sure that the models of regulation that we have built the current regulation on, the concept of editorial responsibility, is not going to translate to a world where there are a billion authors, uh, which is what we have on the internet today. Secondly, plurality. Uh, and we define plurality as, as, as media which gives a diversity of viewpoints, and, uh, uh, and plurality rules are there to ensure that diversity of viewpoints, but also to prevent any one voice from having too much influence in, in the democratic debate. Clearly, the growth and the dissemination of information on the internet challenges, well, maybe it doesn't challenge, it's the wrong word, actually. What it does is it increases the voices uh, more than you can imagine, commenting, tweeting, blogging. Uh, they all alter the nature of journalism. But I think if you step back from that, you have to start thinking about how you measure those voices and what impact those voices have in a society. And so we were asked by the government to consider what is the, what is the right framework for considering plurality. And part of that was considering plurality in an online and internet environment. And we said it's absolutely clear that online has to be included in any plurality it would review. It would be crazy in this day and age to try and do a plurality review which focused on radio, on television, uh, but ignored the internet. On how you measure plurality, we said you need a mix of metrics, and they need to cover availability, consumption, and impact. But of those, consumption is the most important. On how you measure consumption, we said it's complicated. You know, the new world does not have the same measures and metrics as the old world has. It's, in, in television, we have very, very established metrics. In radio, we have established metrics. The internet, we, we have good and interesting metrics, but they're developing all the time. So clearly, when you conduct that review, you have to do it. And the first question you have to ask is, what are the right metrics for us to use in relation to online consumption? Have they improved from the last time we looked at this, when we used X or Y or Z or whatever it might be? We said periodic reviews would be preferable. At the moment in the UK, we have a situation where the regulator can only look at um, plurality issues at the point of a transaction, so when one company decides to buy another. But it has to, be, has to be the case that organic growth and organic change is a material factor in thinking about plurality. It's such a fundamental part of a democratic society. And on the question of sufficiency, what is sufficient plurality? We said Parliament should deal with that. That's not for the regulator. Thirdly, public service broadcasting. Sitting at the heart of the plural media system that we have in the 21st century are the public service broadcasters in the UK headed by the BBC. They're the institutions that we look to to provide us with high-quality, impartial news. They remain on every metric the most trusted sources of news uh, in the UK. At Ofcom, what we're currently doing is we're relicensing the commercial public service broadcasters, that's Channel 4, ITV and 5 uh, for another 10 years. So we're going to have another 10 years of a mixed ecology of 
private and public broadcasting in the UK. But if we're going to have that, it cannot be right that we simply have what we had and roll it over into this new environment. Uh, so we have to think about how that system evolves and how that system changes in order to adapt to the types of uh, audience behaviour and change that I was talking about earlier. Now the first step in that is what I call broadcaster self-help. It's about broadcasters doing things for themselves to adapt to their audiences. And there's lots and lots of good progress in this. You know, We have uh, Channel 4 uh, in the UK which has really moved from being uh, an analogue broadcaster to being a multi-platform um, media provider. Uh, it's trying a lot of things to try and serve those audiences. It's on a learning curve. Uh, I don't think that they'll get everything right, but I think that their ambition to try and explore those areas is, is the right one. Uh, the BBC has put out a new strategy. Uh, it's talked about how it's going to try and move into that internet environment. Uh, it's posited an idea called My BBC, which really has at its heart a very clear understanding of the fundamental difference between broadcasting and the internet in terms of the importance of personalization and the ability that the internet gives you to personalize your experience. The second step is about ensuring the current public service broadcasting interventions work. So we have a system in the UK which basically benef uh, balances uh, benefits for public service broadcasting against obligations. So we'll give you some stuff, please give us some stuff in return. Uh, and that really centers around two benefits today, which is access to spectrum, and uh, what's called EPG prominence, which is basically discoverability, so the fact that you sit at the top of the menus. Uh, and the government set out its position on this, which is that it wants to reform uh, that latter area, and we support that because I think it's really important that if you're going to have this uh, construct of public service broadcasting, uh, and Parliament has decided that we will for now, then um, you need to ensure that those interventions will actually work into the new environment. And frankly, they were designed for the old environment, so there is some updating that's needed there. But I wonder, if we go beyond that, whether there's a debate we need to have, and I'm not saying today, but in, in the not-too-distant future, about whether or not we are reimagining that public service uh, delivery for an Internet-centric world. So we are in this difficult position now where we are trying to serve the audiences where they are. And as I say, linear broadcasting continues to dominate. The figures are extraordinary. But I wonder how quickly that might change and how quickly the audience might diffuse. And I wonder, therefore, whether or not there is a need to have a debate about what it looks like to serve audiences in an Internet environment with public service content using all the things that that makes available to them, participation, interaction, collaboration, all these ideas which are so important uh, and so powerful. Finally, net neutrality. It's a bit of a hot topic, this one. Uh, the argument basically goes like this, that organisations that control the wires should neither favour nor hinder certain types of content flowing over them. We shouldn't allow vertically integrated companies to stop or block other people from using the internet. It's, an, it's a principle which has come under pressure already. It's a principle I think will come under more and more pressure because the other side of the argument is in a world where we're doing more and more on the internet, the constraints on capacity get bigger and bigger. And therefore, if I own a network, I have to manage that because if I don't manage it appropriately, frankly, it won't deliver the services that people want. At the moment, the situation 
is what I describe as fluid, and therefore it's one of those areas where as a regulator you don't want to come in too quickly, but you've got to keep asking yourself questions. You know, is giving consumers informed choice sufficient, uh, or do we need to go further? So at the moment, we believe very strongly that transparency is a really powerful tool in this area. If we let consumers know what people are doing, then they can choose what they want to do, uh, and if they want to change providers, they can. Uh, is there a line between justifiable and unjustifiable traffic management? And the answer to that has to be yes. There are clearly cases where people uh, may consider blocking services on purely commercial grounds. That's very different from managing the network to ensure that the thing that you want to watch on a Friday night is going to actually show without buffering every five seconds and all the rest of it. And thirdly, what are the unintended consequences of regulatory intervention? And I think that's, you know, in some ways the hardest. What I think net neutrality does is highlight really starkly the fundamental tension that's beginning to, to arise between uh, the origins of the internet, the openness, the collaboration, the sharing and the free, and the problems when it becomes the default mechanism of delivery for commercial purposes. And again, I think you know, there's a long way to go in trying to think about how we wrestle with those problems and how we ensure that we preserve the best of the internet uh, whilst also recognising the commercial realities as, as they change. So, in conclusion, we are in a pretty uh, fluid, connected world where we're exposed to more media content than ever before. Uh, we've never before had so much that we've been able to listen to, read to, communicate with, etc. But it's not a uniform experience for the participants. Some are unable or unwilling to connect. There's big degrees of separation between different parts of the population. Uh, and the status quo, but, uh, the status quo is, is going to be challenged, but it will be challenged slowly and differently. It's Ofcom's job to sit at the middle of that and to try and ensure that we preserve dynamic markets and that we continue to serve audiences in their entirety, not just one particular group. And we do that by keeping our guiding principles dead centre in our field of vision, which is why I think it's so important to ensure that we keep revisiting those principles and making sure that they are the right ones for society. And I make one final point, it's a very, very important point in this, which is we do that as an independent regulator. That's independence which is secured both at a European and a UK level in legislation. And that is fundamentally important because no referee can referee a game if political whim is going to come in and take the decisions uh, rather than empirical evidence. So in a sense, ours is a simple directive, but what I hope I've done is I've left you with uh, some flavour of the hugely complex challenges that we face as a regulator, and at least for me, why it's such an interesting area to work in. Thank you very much.